This episode of the DLU podcast is brought to you by Goalie Nutrition. As someone who's used Goalie for quite some time, I can tell you that they're not only very good, but they're very beneficial. My favorite are the Super Green Gummies. The Super Green Gummies are uniquely crafted with a spectrum of essential nutrients such as vitamins A, B12, folic acid, and theamine. It supports a healthy liver function, healthy nervous and immune system, digestive health, a boost to your metabolism, and overall health and well-being. There are no artificial sweeteners, flavors, or colors from artificial sources. They're vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and gelatin-free. All loyal listeners of the DLU podcast get a special 10% discount at checkout. Go to Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. That's Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. This podcast is a Believe Network and Luciete production. Welcome to another edition of the DLU Podcast, brought to you by Believe Network. I'm your host, Derek T. Lewis, and wow, wow, wow. Had a fun couple of days, you know, at the latter part of the week, the weekend, and up till now. Um, the cat's out of the bag. I can officially talk about it. That other reason why I was in L.A. Um, back in late January, early February is because I was a contestant on Wheel of Fortune for WWE Week. That's right. Cat's out of the bag. I had to keep my lips sealed, if you will. But um, it's out. We were able, we were granted permission from Wheel. They sent us our pictures that we can post. I'm actually partnered up with WWE superstar Sonya Deville. Now, for those that know or don't know, um, Sonya and I go back, my God, 11 years. Um. 11 years we met on a t- we met at a TV pilot um, that was being done in New York City and uh, we just struck up a friendship right then and there and I supported her through all that she was doing in mixed martial arts when she was in LA but then of course when she, when she got signed to WWE you know nothing but love and support for her so it was really good to catch up with her and you know and you know you'll you'll check it out so again we're going to be seen on Tuesday next Tuesday March 28th on ABC, which check out your local um, listings for Wheel of Fortune. But um, over the weekend, I didn't have any wrestling shows, thank God. But I actually did go to Icons of Wrestling in Philly, in South Philly at the ECW Arena, now the 2300 Arena. And I had a chance to catch up with some wrestlers that I've, you know, that I that I currently work with, that I worked with in the past, and I also got to catch up with some legends, you know, like Tatanka and you know IRS, the Million Dollar Man. You know, the Blue Meanie, shout out to the Blue Meanie. Um, go to his uh, Pro Wrestling Tee sh- uh, store and uh, get some BWL merch because I definitely got a t-shirt. Shout out to Meanie. Uh, Brutal Bob Evans, you know, John Morrison, you know, Molina, Enzo Amore. My goodness, the Nasty Boys. Oh, my God, I had a chance to talk to Knobs and Sags. The Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. I had a chance to talk to him, and I had a chance to talk to Jacques Rougeau, who once went by the Mountie. So, so much fun. So much excitement at Icons of Wrestling, and it was just nice to be a fan, you know, because, you know, you, you sometimes forget, you know, why you're in this, and, you know, hey, I'm, I was a fan, I'm, I'm still a fan of wrestling, so 
Speaking of which, you know, the rave reviews about the Monster Factory docu six-part docu-series that's on Apple TV Plus. If you haven't done so, please, I, I urge you, even if you, if you, I believe they have a free trial if you're brand new. So I would definitely recommend getting, you know, Apple TV and tuning in to watching all, you know, the, the Monster Factory. It's a six-part docu-series, around 30 minutes each. And when I tell you, it, it it's... It tells some compelling stories from you know from all five of the featured wrestlers that are on there, but yours truly is featured throughout the series. And again, huge shout out to the team at Apple TV. Huge shout out to Danny Case. Like I said, they got me my start in professional wrestling at the Monster Factory, and you know allowing me to be a part of this project. So unbelievable! Please tune in. But speaking of professional wrestling, this week I have. From New Japan Pro Wrestling, and he actually lives all out in New Zealand. This is the underboss, the rogue general, Bad Luck Fale of the Bullet Club. And, you know, we talk about his early days, you know, playing professionally for rugby in Japan. How he got started wrestling in Japan. His brief tour of the United States and ultimately what started the Bullet Club. You know, which one of one of the most, you know popular acts in all of professional wrestling and again he has a compelling story he really goes into detail about his wrestling career and let's not wait any longer my interview with bad luck fale starts right now Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor, and I mean truly an honor to have this individual on the DLU podcast. He's a former three-time never openweight tag team champion, a former IWGP tag team champion, and a former IWGP intercontinental champion, the underboss, the rogue general, Bad Luck Fale. Welcome to the DLU podcast. How are you, man? I'm fine, man, and thank you for having me on. It's like I said, it's an honor for me, and I know we're we're like thousands of miles away from each other. So just for you to you know take the time out of your schedule to come talk to, you know talk to me on my show, I definitely appreciate it. But speaking of which, again, you are located in New Zealand, but let's talk about life growing up in you know between New Zealand and Tonga. What was life for you growing up as as a kid? Uh, yeah, I moved to New Zealand when I was six, so I grew up with my grandparents. Okay, until I was six, and then. Moved to New Zealand. That's when I actually got to know my parents, and uh, I was here until I graduated from high school, and then left for Japan. So I've been in Japan longer than I have been in any of those other two countries. Oh wow! Okay, and I was going to get into that. So you know, obviously, you being a rugby and rugby is huge in in New Zealand. Obviously, it's like that's a big sport over there. So you were a rugby player for De La Salle College. Then you got a scholarship to Tokoyama University and you play for a Japanese team called the Fokuyawa Sanix Blue. So talk about the how what rugby meant to you and how that was a huge part of your life. Yeah, rugby was my uh, way out, uh, so to speak, because I grew up at the, the uh, let's say the, the bad area of uh, Auckland, New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, the worst area. So rugby was my way out of the, uh, um, how do you say, ghetto, mm-hmm. <laughs> the New Zealand ghetto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I knew it was the only way to get out, so I immersed myself in it, and uh, was lucky enough to get a 
scholarship to go to Japan. Wow. So what position did you play? And again, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a little familiar with rugby, but not all the way. So what position were you in? Talk about some of the, you know, the, the way of play in regards to rugby. Uh, my position was number eight. Um, to compare that with maybe football, I'd say that's kind of like a linebacker. Okay. Yeah. So how powerful uh, defense attack type of position. I have to say, because for the rugby games that I did see, like rugby players are probably one of the toughest athletes in the world because you have, you guys don't have any pads <laughs> on at all. So I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the United States and, you know, American football, they have the pads and they have the helmets and all that stuff. But the fact that you guys are really hitting out there with no, <laughs> pads on at all is it's wild to me i'm like wow these are some tough athletes man to withstand that type of punishment so how did professional wrestling come into your life were you a fan growing up or did did, when you were in japan did was that how everything kind of just fell in fell in line for you yeah just to uh add on to what you're saying there rugby is one of the toughest sports but i do give it up to football as well because there's a reason why you wear those pads Oh yeah, right, right, right. You can't say rugby is the toughest sport. I, I give it out to the football players as well because for a rugby players to go in and and play the way uh, those guys play, it's it's very different type of rules and you know vice versa. You know it's hard for both uh, type of uh, players to play on the other on the other game because the rules are different and it's hard in its own way. So I can't put down rugby. As the top, um, right. toughest uh, game in the world, I'd, I'd say football is right there with it. But sure. uh, finishing from rugby in Japan, uh, I had no other choice but to go back to New Zealand. But I was lucky to have some people who helped me out and um, uh, work work with my my uh, visa to be able to stay in Japan longer and try out for wrestling. So when I retired from rugby, I wanted to stay in Japan and a friend of mine um, offered me a chance to go and try out for wrestling and a chance to stay in Japan. So that's how it all started. Now, did you ever, did you ever pay attention to wrestling you know, in any time in your life before beforehand or that was your first eye on pro wrestling? That was the first time I found out about Urores, Japanese pro wrestling. Whereas before I knew all about uh, the American style, the the lucha libre and and mm-hmm. uh, English type wrestling, but I had never ever thought Japan was up there in wrestling until I tried out and actually looked. And so I went and tried out before I even knew it was New Japan. And uh, I did have my friend offered me a, a tryout with New Japan, so I, I signed up for that. And then a friend, another friend of mine heard about that and said, oh, there's another company uh, you should try out for too, and there was Dragon Gate. Right. And when I tried out for, when I tried out for New Japan, not knowing what it was, no idea it was the top company, tried out for that, and then I went in, while I was still waiting for Dragon Gate to get back to me because I had written them, asking them that I wanted to come and try out and stuff. And luckily, they didn't reply back because, (laughs) you know, New Japan wouldn't 
you know, getting into new media plan was uh, a bit better choice. Yeah, you hear so many stories about, you know, the New Japan Dojo and obviously, you know, you being a young lion. So Nagata, Takahashi and Jado were your trainers. So let's let's take a deep dive a little bit as far as what that training was like, you know, going from obviously you coming from rugby, going to pro wrestling. But what was that training like for you? Well, here's something that most uh, people don't know is in Japan, your coach is everyone. So at the dojo, most of the wrestlers come into the dojo and train every single day. So, for example, imagine being at the at the training center, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 John Cena comes in and trains you for one day. Right. Uh, Roman Reigns comes in tomorrow and trains you one day. You know, imagine that the top wrestlers every single day will come and train you. So. You're being taught by the, the, the most elite uh, guys in the company. And it's not just once, it's pretty much every day. So over there, I had I had mostly Jaro, uh, Nagara, Shinsuke, um, and a few guys here and there. But those guys were the ones who were, were there often. But every time, every day... Somebody will turn up, and they'd want to add their, you know, their knowledge, so, which was so, so good because I got to learn so fast that uh, you know you, you your career or your training just goes from zero to a hundred in the space of a few months. Right. Yeah, because I mean, I heard it's really tough, you know, to to withstand, you know, to go through that dojo. As, as a matter of fact, one of um. One of our guys at the Monster Factory, he just went out to the L.A. Dojo um, a few months ago, and, and he was telling me about how intense that training is. You know, it's, it's one of the it's one of the toughest dojos in the entire world. <laughs> and, you know, that when you talk about learning respect, you know, respect for the business, you better come in there with, you know, with it for sure. Now, yeah. was it difficult transitioning from rugby to pro wrestling or was it an easier transition? Because a lot of times I thought when a lot of football players here in America – they say how it's very, very similar in a sense. It was really easy to transition. So was it an easy transition for you? Uh, no, it wasn't. You know, the funny story, <laughs> when I found out I was going to go try out, I thought, you know, because rugby was really hard, and I thought rugby was tough. Right. But the training was crazy in rugby, and I thought, you know what, let's, I'll, I'll go to wrestling. That's easier. Uh, it's an easier sport than uh, rugby, so... Once I got in there, I, co- I quickly understood and realized that it was way tougher than any sport I've ever played. Wow, wow, wow. So now let's go back to your first, you know, you talk about your first wrestling match that you had. Once you were out, once you were done training, who was your first match? And did you have the jitters or were you just really confident going in there and getting the job done? Here's another thing that most, most people don't understand is the training you do with New Japan, they don't teach you how to do pro wrestling. They teach you how to be real fighters. They'll teach you how to box, how to grapple, mm-hmm. how to wrestle, amateur wrestling first. I didn't know how to do a lockup until two weeks before debuting. Right? Two weeks, they told me I was debuting. Two weeks before, the, one of my coaches said, hey, ask Carl Anderson how to do a lockup. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's Carl Edison. That's, lock yeah. Wow. And he told me how to, how to do my first lockup. And, you know, it's more more like uh, they throw you into the lion's den and you got to survive. If not, this business is not for you. So they'll teach you how to maintain your, uh, how to be a, a lion, mm-hmm. you know, in training. But when you get in the ring, you have to figure it out yourself. And my first match was... Uh, versus Nakanishi Manabu. When I was uh when I debuted at that time 2010, he was one of the top guys in Japan and he was known for being the, the, the hardest hitter, hardest chop guy in the company. And this guy was about was about what, maybe 340 pounds. Wow. And he could do everything everybody could do. And uh, it wasn't until he hurt himself um, in 2011, I think. Up until then, he was literally one of the most feared uh, Japanese wrestlers in Japan. And he was my first match. They put me up up against this guy, and I had two weeks, two weeks to prepare to wrestle this guy in, in Korakuen. And to debut in Korakuen, you're, you're one of the elites, they say. If you debut at Korakuen, you're one of the elite uh, young lions. If you debut at the Tokyo Dome, you're a freaking superstar. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right, uh, right. Yeah, but uh, it was very nerve-wracking. Um, I've, I'd say I've, I've watched that match maybe twice because it's, it was so embarrassing the way I wrestled. And plus, he beat the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Two weeks, yeah, a week after that, I couldn't eat. I had to sip my uh, food through a straw because uh, I didn't break it, but it dislocated my jaw for a whole week before I could actually realize. But uh, that was it, man. It was that that, that first match was a a test if if I wanted to really be in this business or not. But right. uh, you hear stories about yeah, that a lot. Tough, you know. After after that match, I walked backstage. You know, I was so nervous, so tired. My legs were wobbling, and everybody didn't really like. They didn't like what they saw, <laughs> which of course I had. I hadn't wrestled in my life, but uh, a lot of the guys backstage just gave me the oh, congratulations. But nobody, you know, I knew fuck. I fucked up. You know, mm-hmm. that was a shitty match. And the only person who gave me a positive review was uh, Carl Anderson because I came to him and I said, oh, what did you think? And he goes, hmm, that white tape on your wrist look good. <laughs> <laughs> Backhanded compliment. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was so heat, man. I give it to him, man. Uh, thank you, thank, thank you, Carl. Uh, you know, you you had to find something to cheer me up a little bit. So. For sure. And speaking <laughs> of Carl Anderson, I was gonna say, speaking of Carl Anderson, it was later on that year, you know, you took place, you took a part of the the 2010 J Sports Crown Open Way Six Man Tag Team Tournament with Carl Anderson and Giant Bernard, who we know as Albert, all in your first yeah. year of the business. So was that? I guess was it bringing it a little bit, a little bit easier for you being in that six man tag along with the guy that was mentoring you? Yeah, of course. At the time, uh, myself, um, Finn Baylor, and and Carl Anderson, 
and Tamatonga. Mm -hmm. So there was only four of us. Tamatonga, Carl Anderson, Finn Bella, and and uh, John Bernard. We were the only four foreigners for years were the only ones who, who were allowed or or hired by the company mm. during that time. They they wouldn't bring anybody else because they had no money then. So we came in when the company was at its lowest. But uh, yeah, for about two or three years, we were the only four. Every tour, tour in and out, um, day in day out, we were the only four. And it was just when um, when uh, uh, what's the name? When John Bernard left, that uh, you know the Bullet Club came along because it made sense. We we're the only ones there, and that's how we you know, ended up together. Right, right. And in between the in between that six man tag and you returning, you know, to, to you know, as far as Bullet Cup's concerned, you took a 14 month journey to the United States for more training. So was that something that you decided to do? Or was some of the, you know, some of the um the higher ups in New Japan say, hey, let's go get some more training under your belt overseas yeah. and come back stronger. Was that the case? Uh it's that is the case at the same time. Uh, it's um, timing, you know. Okada had just finished his uh, two year excursion, so uh, up next, I was on next in line. So when Okada came, came back to Japan because mm -hmm. he was with TNA for about two years, yeah. And I when he came that. back to Japan in 2011, then uh, it was my turn to go out for a couple of years. And 2012, uh, they sent me to St. Louis to train with uh, David Richards and Tony Cozina. And uh, I trained with them for a year. I was supposed to train for two years, but after a year, the the big opportunity with Bullet Club was um, developed. So they shortened my trip to a year, and that's when I went back. So when you – so coming into the United States and when you're, you're beginning to learn the American style – was there a was a huge, I guess, learning curve in regards to what you learned in Japan versus what you're learning in the United States? Because obviously with the United States, it is a little bit different than strong style. So yeah. talk about the, I guess, was there any challenges or not once you got to America and began to learn the American style? Yeah, I was I didn't really learn much from, from the American style because uh I was I was doing a lot of the indies, and I, I quickly figured out that most most bookers would just book me as a monster, where I'd just squash guys in one or two minutes. Right. And I thought, I'm not learning much just by doing that. So I, I started to pull back on going on the indie shows and just train harder with Davey and Tony. And I learned more from, you know, training with those guys than going out and doing all the, the, the matches around the States, um, which uh, didn't really help. But just being out of, of Japan and going along to these shows, I learned in a different way, uh, just by watching and and understanding what goes back, uh, goes on behind the scenes and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Right, right, right. And again, and the reason why I asked that is because, you know, like I said, I've been watching pro wrestling over for over 40 years and 
I know there is a difference, you know, when I've watched, you know, New Japan, especially, you know, with Muda, Kenshi Sasaki, uh, Masahiro Chono, you know, just it was the style was just very, very gritty. You know what I mean? And yes. versus where where I am, there's there's a lot of showmanship and there's the working and the things like that. So there it, there is a big difference there. And that's why I was I was wondering as far as how was that? learning curve for you, you know, when you did, you know, do your um 14 month excursion to the United States. But let's yeah. talk about the Bullet Club. So, whose idea was it? How did it all come to be? <laughs> uh it was a spare of the moment thing, right? Um what had happened was I I had 2 years to go to America and and you know, try and survive as a wrestler there. But uh, was cut short because uh, Finn Balor was, uh, I think he was getting bored. He was getting bored of doing the Jap Jap uh, New Japan scene because he had done everything. He had, you know, been champion, he'd been right. champion and Super Junior Cup. Super Junior, uh, right, 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 right. He'd done it for years and, and he was getting bored and he, I think he was... He wasn't uh, feeling challenged, and I think he was thinking of leaving the company. Where, and that's when they came up with uh, the idea of turning him into a, a heavyweight. But um, obviously, he was a smaller guy, so they needed some sort of backing, kind of like Shawn Michaels and Diesel, Diesel kind of Diesel, thing. Right? Yeah. So they called me and they asked me what I thought. And I said, you know, I wanted to stay an extra year and relax. But uh, I thought, you know, there's a great opportunity. Get back early, make some money. And, I, and that's when it started. So when I got back, uh, they put me at his, at his bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the first when I made my my return appearance. And the amount of booing, jeez. The New Japan fans had never really experience uh, a, a heel turn like that before. Right, right, right. And, and the amount of hate and anger uh, directed at the office to get me and and, and Finn Balor and get us fired was real because the president came to us and said, hey, man, the fans want to fire you guys. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> you know, you know they, that's how passionate they were. Right, that you're doing your job, right. Yeah, and uh, I think the office thought, man, we can do something about this if, if this amount of hate is getting people so ramped up. We got to do something about it. And then, you know, obviously there was only four of us at the company at the moment, and uh, I, that's when they decided, you know, let's put them together. So it was a spare of the moment thing. Wow. And it, it ultimately, this was basically about a bunch of uh, foreign wrestlers forming a group to take on, you know, the juggernaut that is New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's kind of similar to what the NWO was. And, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, fans writing letters or fans, you know, being upset, I could that sound like when Hogan turned heel in 96 and joined the NWO. When yeah. I tell you. There, I mean, there were, and mind you, there was no social media back then. You know what I mean? So it was a huge <laughs> thing when everyone's picking up the phone. Hey, did you hear Hulk Hogan turn? You know, he's a bad guy. And it's like, 
And just seeing the heel, just seeing the turn as it happened, I couldn't believe it. I never would have ever thought that Hogan would have turned heel. And just hearing interviews over the years, if it was Eric Bischoff or whoever it is, and they were saying how they were getting letters. You know, people, fans were really writing letters. That just lets you know that it it was working. You know what I mean? It was definitely working. Yeah. They're really passionate about the product. Yeah, yeah, that's how it felt. So, did. At that time, though, 2013, did you foresee Bullet Club becoming a global brand? Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. But it was, we knew something was going to, was was happening because when they put us together, it, it just felt so right. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were the only four there, you know, for the last couple of years, you know, we thought, you know, we'll just, because we have fun outside of the ring when we're together, let's just go in the ring and do the same thing. Because of course we're big fans of NWO and big fans of the Click and all that kind of uh, thing. So we we thought, hey, here's our chance to have fun like those guys when they, you know, were at the top. So yeah, every time we had matches, we'll just go in there and pretty much that's when that's why the two sweet came back, you know, because right. we're just. In there enjoying ourselves, paying tribute to the guys who came before us. And there you go. Just steamrolled from there. You know, because back then, even then, the internet wasn't so big. Twitter has just been come out, only been around a couple of years. Facebook has been around uh, a couple of years. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to use social media. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I think... New Japan hadn't, wasn't even in America yet. It wasn't there until maybe 2015, 16. So I think because we were having so much fun and really the people who knew about uh, the New Japan and, and followed New Japan would get, I don't know, videos maybe or film or, or hear it somehow on the internet. Yeah. And I'll go because New Japan saw us as just, you know, ah, these dumb foreigners. You know, we went into every match trying to force the company to recognize who we were and that we were worth something. And one of the ways to do that was trying to get get out into the world. How do we get out to the world? How do we get ourselves um, known around the world so the company can understand that there's value in us. And one of the main things uh, we decided was wherever we go, when we go out drinking, go out eating, we got to go together. At the same time, whatever merchandise we have, we have to wear. So that's why the shirt became a big thing. Right? We started whatever the merch they gave us, we'd wear it together, take photos, and put it out on our respective social media. And that's when it started just slowly, slowly, slowly. And then because everybody was hearing about, oh, there's, there's this new thing called the Bullet Club. And then, you know, more fans would would uh, stop following it. Oh, we heard about we heard about this. We heard about that. And it just slowly steamrolled. But it, it wasn't a, until when, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, AJ Styles came along. And he had a bigger Twitter follower, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when when the, the the new Bullet Club shirt came out. Just when he was uh, 
coming in, and then we all started taking doing the same thing, wearing those shirts. The Bucks came along; they had their own followers. Uh, uh, Luke Gallows came along, had his own followers, and it was just the right people at the right time with the right amount of followers, and us doing the same thing, hanging out. Some of these guys don't drink. Some of these guys don't like seafood or whatever, but we made sure we all got together. Whatever merchandise we got, let's take a photo. If it's an AJ shirt, let's all take a photo. If it's a Young Bucks shirt, let's all wear it, take a photo. And then we all put it out on our social medias, and that's how it started. That's when it started to steam more and more because the fans started to be were able to see what's going on throughout Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This episode of the DLU podcast is brought to you by Goalie Nutrition. As someone who's used Goalie for quite some time, I can tell you that they're not only very good, but they're very beneficial. My favorite are the Super Green Gummies. The Super Green Gummies are uniquely crafted with a spectrum of essential nutrients such as vitamins A, B12, folic acid, and theamine. It supports a healthy liver function, healthy nervous and immune system, digestive health, a boost to your metabolism, and overall health and well-being. There are no artificial sweeteners, flavors, or colors from artificial sources. They're vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and gelatin-free. All loyal listeners of the DLU podcast get a special 10% discount at checkout. Go to Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. That's Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. I gotta tell you, man. Like, you ever go to a wrestling show, and it was it just it let me know that it was working. When you can see, when you go to a, any wrestling show, I don't care if it was on the Indies or WWE, if you could see an NWO shirt, Austin three sixteen, and Bullet Club, <laughs> like those are the constant shirts that you see a lot. You know what I mean? So that just let me know. I'm like, okay, I said this thing is really, really getting strong globally. <laughs> I mean, the fact that people in the United States are caring about another promotion outside of the country that's huge. That's really, yeah. really huge. So speaking of which, let's just let's take a deep dive on this one. Let's talk about the underboss rogue general character with you and your role in the Bullet Club and just describe your style. What in your mind was your role in the Bullet Club? Yeah, so because I was the uh, bodyguard type guy, <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, my job, you know, and and this is real and wrestling. You have to take your character or whatever job you have, you have to take it seriously. Because if you don't, whatever goes around next uh, around you is not going to work. Right. So if you're given a, a directive, follow it to the T. Figure out how it's done and follow it. Because if you don't, they'll easily change it. We'll get somebody who, who can do it. Or you're not going to get popular or whatever. But you got to do it. It's just like being in a movie. If you're given a role in a movie, mm-hmm. you can't break out a character to do something else. You have to do your job. And I think I've survived and become really successful in, in my company because I've done exactly what they want me to do. So the the job of being the bodyguard, I did it. Bodyguards don't talk, right? Bodyguards just do their job, protect you know, protect the number one guy or mm-hmm. that's it. And I, I used to be a, a freaking security guard back in the day and I, and I stayed there, smile or, or talk, you know, I don't fucking promos and all that shit. 
Right. Um, yeah, and then there was the bodyguard until it got to a point where I thought, you know, it's time to change it up. You know, a lot of the guys had changed. A lot of guys had left. And I thought, you know, uh, I want to change this up. So that's where the Rogue General came, came along because, you know, I thought, you know, maybe it's time to start talking a little bit, you know, and have a lot more fun because things were changing and sometimes I didn't agree with it. And I thought, you know, if I push back on this kind of stuff, I need a character that's, you know, or, or I need to change who I am to be able to push back on that kind of stuff. And that's where the rogue general came. The rogue meaning, you know, outside of the norms. Right, 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 right. Now, let's talk about that early time, you know, Prince David Finn Balor, you know, Machine Gun, Doc Gallows, AJ Styles, Tama Tonga, Young Bucks, Kenny, Takahashi. That version of the Bullet Club, and obviously there's been so many different versions of the Bullet Club. What is your favorite version of the Bullet Club and why? I'd say the my favorite would be the AJ Styles era. Right? That's my favorite. Um second to that would be the first one. The first one, we had so much fun. Um until uh, David left. But the second one was actually when a lot of things in my own career changed because the one thing that was different between David and Styles, excuse me, was uh, the difference was David was the leader, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, there was his job. His job was to be the leader of the ball club. Right, and and it took it to where it, 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 it was before he left. But when AJ Styles came, you know, his he had the same job, but the difference was he came in there and didn't want to be the leader. Right, he he, the first night when he won that bout, the first when he won that bout of Okada, we were all walking back at the hotels, and he pulled us all aside and he said, "This is not about me." This is all about this is all about us. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And he never ever said, you know, me, 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 me. Oh, he said, if we're gonna if we're gonna succeed from here, we, we're gonna succeed together. And while he was there, the short amount of time he was there, everyone's career just had a pop. Yeah, I can still remember um I think it was Wrestle Kingdom nine, and that's when Jim Ross and um, I think it was Matt Stryker had did the American broadcast. And that's when it was really, really growing. And at that time, it was just like, wow. I, and I actually watched that Wrestle Kingdom. I actually stood up and watched it. I ordered it. And you could just feel it was a different energy with New Japan when AJ got there. And it was his next level because that dude can go. He has a motor. <laughs> and I was watching yeah. AJ Styles during the early days of TNA, and he was the face of TNA. And I just think that to your point, when you talk about him having his own following, a lot of those fans did go over, you know, with him. And I think to your and also too, it was just a perfect storm that happened at one time where everyone brought their collective you know, experiences, you know, fan bases together and formed a, a common a common goal, which was to take the Bullet Club to the next level and taking it higher and taking it higher. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's talk about your first singles title, your first and only t- singles title where 
you defeated Shinsuke Nakamura for the Intercontinental Championship. How was that? Was that one of the biggest highlights of your career, winning that singles belt, and did that cement and, and solidify everything you want you set out to do in the business? Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the top highlights of my career. But uh, once again, I was still a rookie, you know, and, and I still didn't understand how, how matches worked. I still didn't have uh, enough experience to be able to do that, that kind of uh, singles run or match. Because, you know, at the New Japan, that 2014, no, 15, no, 14, mm -hmm. uh, New Japan Cup, they, you know, they I, I went to the finals with Shinsuke. Mm -hmm. And I had two big matches in one, you know, one day, and never ever done anything like that. I couldn't even, uh, you know, do one proper match, but to have one match and then do a, a, a finals on the same day was mind blowing to me. And I knew I, I my experience wasn't there, but man, Shinsuke, that's the night Shinsuke made me a superstar <laughs> because. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. At the same time, he taught me a lesson. Like, a sec there was a second time my jaw got dislocated and I broke my nose that night too. Oh, wow. Yeah, he taught me a great lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, after that, that uh, New Japan Cup, man, things changed for me because people started to, in Japan, started saying my name. You know, I'd, I'd hang out with the boys and stuff, but they'll say, oh, it's, it's David. Oh, it's it's this, it's Collins, but I had never heard my name. It wasn't after the until after the um, New Japan Cup that I started hearing fans go, oh, it's Fale, it's Fale. But then when, when I had the title match with him and, actually, and won that belt, man, made me a superstar. And I thanked that guy. Because <laughs> he, he, of course, he was the, one of the top guys at the time. The intercontinental belt was higher than the IWGP at the time, because at at Tokyo Dome, IWGP um, belt was a semi-main event, and Shinsuke would always have the the finals with the with the intercontinental. So it was more. It was more. Uh, so the belt had more prestige prestige than the IWGP at the time because Shinsuke had made it that high and the fans would rather watch that during that time right so for me to win it off it was just you know it told me the company um, you know saw value in myself but at the mm -hmm. same time I was still a, a rookie and for Shinsuke to be able to make me a superstar says a lot about him, right? Right. And, yeah. look, and look where he is now and still going exactly. and, and really made and definitely made him a name for himself on a global basis because obviously WWE is, you know, they're, they're the worldwide leader and everyone knows now who Shinsuke Nakamura is. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, Wrestle Kingdom. Let's just talk about the event itself. Obviously, when you talk about 
you know, we obviously here in the United States, you know, obviously we have the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals and things like that. But WrestleMania is, you know, wrestling's big event for WWE. You know, if it's double or nothing for AEW, if it's um, if for you guys is Wrestle Kingdom, then Mexico is Triple Mania. For you, what does it mean performing at Tokyo Dome on January 4th, being on that card for Wrestle Kingdom every year? Oh, it's it's everything. You know, everybody wants to be on the top number one show, you know. So you work all year and you expect to have some sort of, you know, match. If you're one of the main guys or top guys at the company, you expect to be on those shows. So mm-hmm. it is hard. It's hard when you don't have a match on, on there or you're not even on the show, <laughs> at the show. Right, right, so, right. right. Something you work towards all year, but it, it just feels different. You know, it's very different. You may have a Tokyo Dome once or twice during the year, but the January 4th, like January 4th, you, you just feel differently because everybody's there. People from all over the world are flying in, you know, and it's just that feeling is different. I've been to I've been to two WrestleManias, and one of my goals is to attend a Wrestle Kingdom in Tokyo. That's definitely one of my goals as a fan <laughs> to attend, just to get the just the experience of. Hey, I've never been to Japan before, but I did this. That's definitely an event that I want to experience as a as a longtime wrestling fan. Now, six years ago, you opened up the Fale Dojo in New Zealand, and talk about why you decided to open up a school. What are some of the values and principles you teach? And who were some of the students that came out of that school? Why did I start it? Um, because I played rugby and uh, that career ended pretty early. You know, I, the, uh, you learn your lesson. Mm-hmm. So I thought I started thinking about the future. And, you know, I started thinking about what if I can't, you know, when, when will I retire? And, and also, you know, if I get hurt, well, what do I do then? So the idea about the school would be something I can carry on after wrestling. Um, but I also based it out in, in the... Give me a block nose here. I also uh, based it out in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, because I wanted to give um, the youth here a, a chance, you know, much like I did when I... Uh, but to go to Japan, so creating pathways and also spreading the New Japan brand out here is, is one of the main reasons. Um, a couple of guys that's been through here, uh, I'd say uh, Hinare, Hinare in New Japan. Um, I've got one young lion who's there now, uh, Oscar Lou. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Sorry about that noise. Uh, we also had Robbie Eagles had come through here. Uh, Gino Gambino had come through here. Aaron Solo over at AEW come through. Just to name a few. That's good, man. And it's always good to have it tied to New Japan. You know what I mean? In fact, the things that you learn in there and things you can bring back to your school and thus creating an opportunity for like you said, the youth, because of things you've learned, obviously through rugby and team sports. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. 
the 2020 pandemic, and I know they had closed a lot of the borders and everything. So as a wrestler, as, you know, as, as a, obviously, you know, you're running your own business. How, how did you weather the storm getting through that period? Cause I know it affected, it affected everybody, but for you specifically as a professional wrestler, not being able to go to your own, your own promotion, New Japan Pro Wrestling, how difficult was that for you going through the pandemic? Yeah, it was very, like everyone knows, hard, especially trying to keep the school open. Because uh, I did have a lot of students from all overseas, from all over the world who were here. So when the borders closed, they were stuck here. So, of course, it was hard for me because I couldn't go back to Japan and work. Because they were still going and, and uh, our guys in America and states were still going. But uh, it was tough because I couldn't wrestle. At the same time, I had my students here. So I may do with, with, with just, you know, wrestle each other and train every day. That's how we cope. Good, good, good. Because I know, like I said, for the, for, I'm, you know, I'm with Monster Factory and I know for, I think from maybe March until like October, it was closed. You know what I mean? And it was, even for me, it was like, because I'm an actor too. It, I, there was no auditions. It was, it was the, it was probably one of the hardest things that, that I had to, you know, to, to deal with as far as how do I navigate through this? <laughs> we're yeah. sitting still. We're not doing anything. It's like, what do we do? And I found stuff to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, that's it and that in itself is you know i think a lot of creatives you know especially you, you yourself you know hey we're going to train every day you know what i mean and make the and make the most of this type of situation yeah. yeah what's the biggest piece of advice anyone has given you in pro wrestling um, there was a lot um <laughs> <laughs> uh... i'll give you two Okay. Uh, one I can't remember. It may be. It may have been uh, Samoa Joe, mm -hmm. but I can't remember. Is open your ears, shut your mouth. That's one. Mm -hmm. The second one I can't remember who it was, but it was don't be shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. Shit. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Now, do you have any advice for any aspiring wrestlers that are listening to this podcast right now? Yes, I do. Um, here it is. He who says he can and he who says he can't are both right. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll explain it. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. In this business, it's very easy to give up. Mm -hmm. So if you tell yourself you can't do it, you won't be able to do it. But if you tell yourself you can, you will. It's all up here. <laughs> it is? Yeah. And in that's this the hardest. Business, yeah. In this business, it's all up here. Because one little thing can just throw you off your game and you just have to just be mentally strong Exactly. You know, what I mean to get to to get through those tough times, and trust me, even as a ring announcer, I've gone through my my tough <laughs> times of just getting through because that people think it. I'm just standing in there, you know, yep. reading off. Of, no, that is every job in pro wrestling has its challenges. 
I don't care if you're working in gorilla. I don't care if you're doing camera. If you're in the ring, obviously wrestling, if you're ring announcing, if you're doing commentary, everybody, everyone's job comes with some type of difficulty because you have, there's a level of consistency that we have. There's a standard, you know what I mean? From guys way before us that, that were in this, that in this industry that we have to continue to work towards. So I totally get exactly what you're saying as far as definitely being mentally strong, you know, to as far as longevity in this business. But do you have any aspirations at this juncture in this stage in your career to wrestle for another promotion, preferably in the United States, whether it's WWE, AEW, Impact, MLW, or Ring of Honor? Right now, I'm I'm doing pretty well with New Japan. And they they're looking after me really good, but mm-hmm. uh, if the offer's there, if there's like an uh company thing going on, I would love to work with any of these companies. Um, you know, I, I missed out on a big chance of being able to wrestle there because, you know, I was doing really well in the at New Japan. So if the chance is there, I'll jump at it. Uh, if it's an inter company. Uh, Opportunity. In a but right now, I'm enjoying I am, and I've got a lot of free um, reign with the company, and they're allowing me to do my, uh, you know, expand the brand in New Zealand, Australia with uh, New Japan Tamashii. So, you know, I kind of, you know, enjoy what I'm doing. So, right now, that's where I am. Okay. Before we get out of here, two more things. Who is your favorite? Who, if, if you could say, if you could pinpoint, if someone never met you, and they said, "Who is your favorite opponent?" Who is it? Oh, I'd say Yano. Yano Toru. Okay. And do you remember which event or which uh, which event it was that you wrestled him? Oh man, I've had so many angles with him. Mm-hmm. Yano Toru is man one of the funniest and easiest guys to wrestle. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And my last question is where can fans find you on social media? You know, where they can buy your merch, you know, talk about, you know, if they, if they're interested in maybe training over at your school and whatever upcoming events you have. Yes. Uh, you can find me at talks Fale at, uh, uh, on, on Facebook or, or Instagram or Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at Toxfale8 on TikTok. Big TikTok guy here, so find me there. Uh, also, uh, the Fale Dojo, if you, you know, faledojo.com, if you're looking for high intense professional type uh, wrestling training, uh, faledojo.com. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, New Japan Tamashi shows coming up soon. And that should be announced uh, in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, Fale, man, like I said at the beginning of the of the interview, you know, this was an honor for me, you know, for someone that I've watched you wrestle for a, for a long time, you know what I mean? And just being able to connect with New Japan as a fan and just seeing the growth. I mean, the fact that there's New Japan t-shirts being sold in Hot Topic over here says a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like our it, this may have been 2016, 2017, 2018, I think. And I'm I'm in literally in top topic and I'm seeing bullet club t-shirts all in there. I'm like, this is this is working. And I and I loved it. 
because I love the fact that all the, you know, all the boys and girls in the business, I want them to make money. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want people to continue to make money and make a living in this, in this wonderful business. So again, you know, thank you so much for, um, for, for giving me your time, you know, and again, we're in opposite sides of, <laughs> of the planet here, but thank you, man. And I, I look forward to talking to you down the road. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Well, that does it for this week's edition of the DLU Podcast. Again, I want to thank Bad Luck Fale for taking the time, like seriously, out of his extremely busy schedule, you know, running his wrestling school. And he's on the opposite side of the world. He's in New Zealand. I'm over in the eastern part of the United States. So there was a huge time difference, but we were able to make it work. And again, I, I'm really, really appreciative that he uh, wanted to come on to the DLU Podcast and uh, talk about wrestling. But this weekend, you can catch me Ring announcing for ECWA and their Super 8 tournament, one of the most premier events in all of independent pro wrestling. They're at the uh, at the dugout in Morganville, New Jersey. Tickets are on sale right now at ecwarrestling.com. You can see all of the stars of ECWA in addition to those taking, you know, taking part of the Super 8 tournament. You can check me out on social media, which is uh, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok at the real DT Lou. You can also go onto my Facebook page, Derek T. Lewis official page. Get your Derek T. Lewis merchandise over at shop.derrickt.lewis.com. Again, you can get all of your t-shirts and hoodies right at my merchandise store. Well, I'm going to get out of here and just remember, whatever you do in life, always remember to make it count. See you next time.